innovation is by its very nature, a very failure prone and very risky activity. I think that being able to take a cohort of folks that, again, by selection, by training, by professional advancement, tend to be very risk averse and then put the kind of innovation problem in their hands, that requires a lot of intentionality and, and a, a, a real intentional structure. And I would say that's kind of at the heart of the work that I am doing. You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. Hello and welcome. I am really excited to share this week's episode of The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield with you. That's me, by the way. Uh, This week's episode is actually me as a guest on another podcast called the Lean Law Firm Podcast, which is hosted by my friends Dave Maxfield and Larry Port. Uh, Dave and Larry are two super interesting guys. Uh, Dave's an attorney. He is a consumer protection attorney in South Carolina. And Larry runs a software company called Rocket Matter, which is a product to help attorneys manage their practices, manage their cases, uh, and generally run better, more efficient, more effective practices. So be, so be better attorneys. Uh, possibly um, one of the most um, interesting podcasts I've done because Dave and Larry have co-written a book called uh, The Lean Law Firm, published by the uh, ABA, the American Bar Association. And it's a book that I commend to you. If you're an attorney, um, as many of my listeners and clients are, I, I highly recommend it. But even if you're not an attorney, if you're somebody that runs a business or um, runs part of a business, helps manage other people, it's a really interesting take on applying the um, the, the principles of lean to how to make kind of any sort of repeatable process more efficient and more effective. And it's a really, they're, they're really great writers. Uh, I really enjoyed the book and I think it informs their, their whole approach to how they think about the, the practice of law. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll touch on some of that in the podcast, but a lot of what we'll talk about is, uh, my work with meltdown and complexity and kind of how it can apply in this context. So what it means to have enough slack in the system, what it means to manage a complex system and a complex process. So I, I recommend the um, the book to you, the, the Lean Law Firm. I, I really enjoyed it. And I hope you enjoy our conversation. Um, we, we have a lot of fun. We talk about a lot of different things. And hopefully there's a lot of value in there for you, no matter what you do. Thanks very much. This is the Lean Law Firm Podcast with Dave Maxfield and Larry Port, authors of the ABA's new book, The Lean Law Firm. Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks, guys. I'm super excited to be chatting with y'all. Dave, so I know you're super excited about this. I am. I think you were not suitably effusive enough because I've, I've read Chris's book, uh, and it talks about plane crashes and oil spills and Enron and like basically like how these huge, you know, complex organizations and some things that you think aren't so complex that are actually 
quite complex, fail. And it's usually not how you think it is. It's not some big catastrophic failure, but a whole lot of little things. But I am a huge fan of this book. It's one of the ones that I've read lately where you just, I mean, I would, Chris, I would read this book on the beach and I'm, I'm a little geeky, but I mean, it tells great stories, really, really interesting. And so what, what I'd like you to do is kind of talk to us a little bit, at least at the beginning about, you know, how, how, how do businesses fail and what is, what's complexity really mean? And what does that mean for law firms? So, you know, I'll th- maybe I'll just take a second to talk about the, the kind of journey to the book, which was sort of, for me, a little bit surprising. Um, I, was, I started out my career as a derivatives trader. So 2006, 2007. Oh, I see a meltdown yeah. on the horizon. <laughs> see a meltdown, yep. And so I really, I really did. I had this front row seat to the financial crisis. And I just got really really curious and really interested in just why some firms did really well during that crisis, or at least sort of held their own and, and seemed one step ahead of things while others, you know, totally collapsed. And I, I sort of had that observation, but was also skeptical of that observation. And so I just started reading a lot. I started thinking a lot and I started talking to um, a good friend of mine who was just finishing up his PhD in, in sociology, who, ended up being the co-author on, on Meltdown, um, when you kind of fast forward a, a decade, just about why organizations kind of fail and, and why they do what they do. So, you know, for, for me, it really started with that, that curiosity and that kind of front row seat. And then as my, as my career in finance progressed, I moved from, you know, trading to really thinking about the, the kind of systems that were in place. And, and those systems, frankly, included lots of regulatory questions and lots of legal questions. And so I I ended up working on this team at the kind of small broker dealer that I was at that did risk and risk regulatory legal and compliance stuff. And it was really interesting. It was interesting both to, you know, try and understand the way that complexity was kind of created by like the law itself and the rules itself, you know, all these, all these rules that were designed to achieve some specific outcome well, you know, now they don't let you do this kind of trade. So you've got to set up a legal entity and it's got to be, you know, domiciled in Singapore, but it's got to have this tax status and, <laughs> wow. and blah, 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 blah. And, and so it was this, just this kind of constant management of complexity that we were doing. And then not to mention, you know, the technology systems, the trading systems. And so it wasn't, it, but so I was really embedded in that work. And then but it was really in 2010 when uh, when Deepwater Horizon exploded, when you know B- BP had their big oil spill in the Gulf, that I just realized, like, wow, this is just a much much bigger question than than the kind of financial you know financial and technology world that I'm approaching it from. And so I just personally decided to make a bet in a, I think in in late 2012, early 2013, that if companies were going to be losing you know tens of billions of dollars from from these small mistakes that kind of spiraled into these big failures, then they were going to start to see the value eventually of kind of trying to get ahead of that kind of question. And, you know, here we are seven, eight years later, and I'm happy to say it's, it's kind of coming true. Like there are lots of people who are becoming much more attuned to complexity, I think being the sort of and managing complexity being the central job of lots of organizations, even as they do something else that appears to be their kind of primary responsibility. 
Huh, that's interesting. Isn't that like one of the signs of societal collapse is like over complex bureaucracies or something like that? Just, I, I hope <laughs> not, but I, I think that's in the back of my head, it's something I read once. This So this is pretty interesting. So how do you how do you approach the problem in a book? Because you were talking about managing complexity and it's a business book. So I know there's, you know, there's anecdotal stuff in it, but like, how do you, how do you kind of slice through all that to kind of distill principles and stuff? Can I, Hey, can I interrupt and get him to talk first about like kind of what the characteristics of, of complexity yes. are? Yes. Because uh, there's this great, you know, I, I love the book again, but there's a chart in the book that's great. It's um, and it's, I think it comes from a guy named Chick Perot, right? Dave loves charts, by the way. He's, he's, he's not reading your book, Chris. Well, he's charts just looking help at the picture. us understand. I mean, charts are a perfect example of, uh, you know, making something visible that might not be visible otherwise to us and, and explaining things really easily. And there's a, a guy named Chick Perot and, and talk to us a little bit about this, this complexity and tight coupling chart that um, you have in the book, because I think it, I, it's fun. It was fun for me to sort of look at my firm and go, well, where are we on that chart? What, you know, what does that mean for us? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a, I mean, Chick Perot was, was brilliant and also really kind of generous with his, with his time and feedback with us as we, as we tried to translate his research to a kind of broader audience, but his basic idea, and he kind of came to this after looking at the three mile Island nuclear meltdown where, you know, after the meltdown, there was a presidential commission and, and blah, blah, blah. And what was, the, what was the cause of it? Well, of course, it was operator error. People did the wrong things at the wrong time, and they didn't understand, and they missed stuff. And what, what Perot did was he looked at that accident, and he said, that's a cheap shot. It's a cheap shot to blame the operators, because the logic of the accident was not understood until months and months later. And so you can't expect the people at the moment to kind of understand what's happening when you don't even understand the logic of the of the accident until much later. And so what, what Perot did was he really looked at it kind of from first principles. And, and he and his, his research group looked at Three Mile Island and a bunch of other disasters. And what they saw was kind of that there were these two variables that were really important. One was complexity. And that's basically how much, um, I, you can think about it in a couple different ways, but it's like how much your system is like a web rather than an assembly line, how much there are interconnections between different parts rather than a kind of process that you can, you know, sort of map out in a straightforward way, um, in, a, in a linear way. Um, the other bit of complexity that I think is, is important is just sort of how understandable is your system? How visible is work in progress? Um, and, you know, the, the more complex a system gets, it, when you're talking about physical systems or when you're talking about you know, even information flows, like we all know that there's a way that things are written down as they are supposed to happen. And then there's a way that they actually happen. And, and kind of the more complex your system, the more divergent there is between those things, whether it's, you know, how somebody really, really works on a valve or shuts down a part of your plant, or, you know, does somebody really get a cup like the sign-offs that they're supposed to for an expense report or, or something like that? So Perot thought about complexity as kind of one of the axes on that chart that you're referring to. And then the other one is, is this concept called tight coupling, which he borrowed from engineering. And it's really just like how much, like how much slack is there in your system? How much time is there to recover from errors? And so complexity creates unexpected problems from kind of little small things combining 
tight coupling means that it's hard to recover from those problems. And so when you have a complex system that is also tightly coupled, you're in what we think of as this, this danger zone where kind of these unpredictable failures are more likely to happen. And when they happen, they are more likely to have big consequences and be harder to recover from. They seem to get out of control really quickly because you have so many moving parts that are woven together that you know, the, the interactions between them are such brief time intervals that a whole lot of things can go wrong really quickly, right? Exactly. Yep, that's exactly. And it's interesting because sometimes time is, you know, in milliseconds, like in the high frequency trading world I was in, but sometimes it's in, you know, on, on the time scale of, of months where you have kind of like, you know, Enron was an example of a tightly coupled system that took months to unravel once the kind of interactions came to the fore. You know, uh, the tightly coupling is a huge um, concept in software engineering. And like, I mean, just to illustrate the example of like what that might look like uh, from our perspective, like say you had a database and the server on the same computer, that's pretty tightly coupled. You separate the database out onto its separate server and you have the logic running on a different server. And that way, now, if like, you know, one of them fails, maybe you can, you can fail over to a different database server. You have, you have more flexibility in your system. You have more uh, fault tolerance and so on and so forth. But yeah, I mean, uh, tightly coupling is, and loosely coupled is, the, uh, is what we're always shooting for. How can we design a loosely coupled system? So it's kind of interesting to hear the uh, computer software stuff being used in this, in this sense. Yeah, and can, can we nerd out about that for a second? Sure. <laughs> By all means. I, I, I think the other way that this shows up in software and, you know, a, a good percentage of my clients are people that, that, write, um, that write software. I mean, that, that's their, that, like Etsy, for example, is a client and, you know, that's their, that's their business and they're, they're, they're quite good at it. I thought they made wooden spoons. They do. They, they, they make wooden spoons and they sell software. Oh, or, and, and, they, and, they, and they write software. And they write software. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so another example of loosely coupled systems and software is... Oh, yeah. Thank you. Is, you know, the kind of continuous integration, continuous deployment thing, right? Where you sort of, like, you make it so you're kind of always pushing out a... a or you're always working off of a good version of your software by testing it all the time. And so that actually might be reducing complexity in, in some sense, but you're basically, you know, reducing complexity so that you're kind of, you can make better guarantees about the fact that your system is going to be well running. And then as part of that, you know, it, you also make it easy to kind of reverse a bad deployment that you may have just made. And so you're kind of injecting the ability to kind of decouple your troubleshooting from the fact that there's actually a problem. And I think that's really powerful too. That, and that, that's one of the things that Larry's talked about this before that's kind of changed in the software world where, you know, once upon a time you'd have these, you know, here's V1.0 and, you know, that would come out and you'd use that for a while. And then V2.0 would come out. And it would be like a wholly different thing that was a brand new everything. And now it's this sort of creep of like, little improvements all the time, which of course in the book we talk about Kaizen, but that's, you know, you're not making these upheaving changes all the time that could, you know, introduce a whole new set of variables, you know, every time. Well, let me ask you guys this because, you know, um, you know, I know Chris, you work with the Microsoft legal department and Dave, you are an attorney, but like, like what would be an example of uh, tightly coupled, tightly coupled components in legal? Tough question. I'll take a guess. I think, uh, Dave, I'm interested in your perspective too. But I mean, I think one thing is anything where there's a tight deadline, right? So anything where you are kind of marching towards a deadline, that imposes more and more tight coupling as you 
as you go on, as you kind of go forward. You know, the complexity bit is the kind of like the more parties that are involved or the more things, different things you have to handle as part of your process, the more likely you are to hit a hiccup that, that kind of impacts you in a way that's hard to resolve because the system is tightly coupled. That That's kind of one of my mental models. Dave, what, I'm curious what you... Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, that compressing time always increases the, the chance of some kind of an error creeping up that you can't easily walk back. I mean, that is absolutely, you know, true, not just in law, but in anything, you know, and, and when you talk about like sort of the number of things that you have to deal with, one of the things that, you know, we talk about in the book is really trying to find your your niche of this sort of limited basket of practice areas. Because if you try to do everything, you now have way more variables. You know, the thing that I think in the book that really resonated with me the most was the idea of unobservability. I mean, I think that's yeah. what we have in law firms. It's like, and, and just, I'll, I'm going to try to summarize it and I'll probably not quite nail it. But like, one of the reasons that you know you have problems with like nuclear plants and things like that, like uh, you discuss in the book, is that you have tight coupling you have complexity, but part of that complexity is the fact that you don't have like a porthole window to look into the reactor core and see what's really happening. So you have to rely on instruments to tell you like, is the water level too high? Is it too low? And when you don't have, um, if your instruments are wrong or the instruments are misread, especially when time is compressed, you have all these, you know, a lot of these, these errors that you have with aircraft and, um, reactors and things like that are because people can't really see exactly what's going on. You know, like the aircraft, the airplane crash example that you give in the book, they're flying on instruments, they're in clouds, their instruments tell them one thing and they have a miscommunication with the control tower, which, you know, they make a bad assumption and that leads to tragedy. But what we have in a law firm, I think, is we have sort of this core problem of whether you like it or not, your firm is a system right? Should run as a system. But what does that actually look like? I mean, there's not, we don't have like gauges and whistles and bells on the wall to tell us everything. So we have to create that for ourselves. And like our primary method of, of making the unobservable observable was like through Kanban boards and things like that, so that we can really see what, what the flow actually looks like. And that's why we're so big on that stuff is because we're trying to give people visibility. And we're trying to take things like you know, that really matter to measure KPIs, the ones that matter and have a very limited number of those instead of like a, you know, a, a jet plane with, you know, 9,000 dials and gauges and buttons and things that, because you also talk about warning systems that are so complex that they paralyze people, right? Totally. So, yeah, that's my take. I think that's spot on. And I, I think, you know, the other thing that I would add to that, that is, I think, Im probably implicit in, I mean, I know you guys think in these terms, but you know, the, the other benefit that you get from visibility is you get to then start to iterate, right? You get to then start to improve and start to, with a retrospective process, start to see, okay, like, well, what didn't work there? What did work? And, and, and kind of what do we want to do differently next time? And I think those two things are, are together really, really powerful and not just drive visibility and reduce complexity, but also just drive improvement over time, which is, you know, fabulous. I just wanted to find out, are you able to talk a little bit about what you've done with the Microsoft legal team, like uh, some of the problems that you've helped them solve? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. So, you know, I think to talk about it in, to talk about it, we can zoom out a second and talk a little bit about the culture of law more broadly as, you know, this, this kind of, um, I hear the word, I hear lawyers describe 
and I am not a lawyer, so you know, I hope this isn't like, you know, I can make fun of my brother, but you can't make fun of my brother. I'm not making fun. <laughs> uh, I'm just sort of sharing, uh, you know, kind of what's, what I think is is more and more evident in, in, in the water is that there are kind of prevalent attitude that comes from legal training, probably comes some from, from selection also, that the kind of, that legal work is artisanal work, that, that every matter in front of you is a unique matter. Oh, yes. I, I'm not a lawyer either, but I've definitely seen that. That is the has been the prevailing attitude that in some ways we're setting about to try to change. Yeah, totally. And 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 I think there's a way in which, you know, the the education system pushes you to that, right? Because I mean when you when you have a precedent-based education, and now I'm totally off the cuff here, so I hold this <laughs> very, very lightly. When you have a precedent-based education system or or system, you're you're kind of constantly looking to the things that are different and exceptional rather than learning about the things that are the same, because the things that are the same sort of never rise to the top in some sense. And so you take a company like Microsoft that spends, you know, you can look in their in their annual report, they spend a gajillion dollars on um, outside counsel a year, they spend a gajillion dollars on their on their in, you know internal in-house legal department. And they are also a technology company. So it is, um, there are some folks there, uh, the guy that I work most closely with is called Jason, his name is Jason Barnwell. He is a, a trained as an MIT software engineer, worked in startups, then went to law school, advised startups, and then has been at Microsoft for, I think, a, a decade-ish. And so what he sees is this kind of, that there's this kind of opportunity to take this artisanal practice and sort of transform it by using technology in the back end to help lawyers and and paralegals and staff really focus on you know the the x percent of the work that actually needs like robust and and concentrated human attention rather than distribute time you know uniformly between all the tasks that are in front of you so i think that's one of the ways i think about the background of the problem does it does that make sense so far that makes yeah, absolutely. complete sense and i mean that is exactly what somebody should be looking at right now i think i, I think if they don't they're going to be in trouble because i think other people will figure it out and we're already seeing you know in the uk uh non-lawyer business owners of law firms yep totally and we're seeing that being threatened in california and some other states too so i, I think um we got to get a little bit with the program here and to to the point of like you know that even if like novels and screenplays and movies, like these things are all unique, you know, but they follow very established like patterns of how things progress. Like you, you know, um, there's certain techniques to writing a novel. There's certain techniques to writing a screenplay that people do. So, you know, even though these things are complete unique works of art on occasion, it still follows a process that's predictable. Yeah. Or, and I think this is what, you know, I, and I think, as you guys with your work borrow from from software but also borrow from you know lean and manufacturing and and those ideas it's like like what these what these kind of techniques do is they take these problems that that do have these unique components and they divide it into things that are repeatable processes and and that you can get results from and then things that are unique and you do need to spend your time really engaging with and and thinking about so you know, here here is a like a, a a really simple example that that Microsoft has set up, and and then I'll talk about the kind of the bigger drive that the bigger fish that they're going after. 
a simple example of something they have set up is a process to automatically generate conflict waivers. And when I say automatically, I don't mean with no human intervention. I mean with a human, the appropriate human looking at it saying, yeah, we don't have a problem with this, clicking a button, and then all of the paperwork gets generated, sent out, you know, it kind of signed and archived and stored in a way that is sensible. And that's very different than an email landing on somebody's inbox, and then it becomes one of, you know, 30 tasks that they have to get to that day or, or whatever. So that's a very, like, simple, also non-threatening example, because I think nobody thinks of like, oh, man, you know, why did I go to one of the country's top law schools to talk about conflicts letters? You know, it's like, no, it's like very, it's very easy to understand. It's a simple process, it's, and it's easy to make repeatable and plug into lots of the infrastructure that they already have. So that's like, that's like the bottom rung of the ladder. Yeah. And then, you know, near the top, you have, you know, what scares some people, which is, you know, how far will AI go with decision-making type things that you think, you know, really should be the, the, the providence of that, uh, that craftsman, you know, that, that human that's looking at things. I think, you know, we, we gave a talk last week, or I did to uh, students at USC Law School, and one of the things that came up was just sort of organically came out of the conversation was because we we're talking about AI and, you know, where that would go and what would happen. But we talked about sort of the soft skills. You know, you have AI is logical. You know, AI is going to make decisions and give recommendations based on some logical pattern or process. Whereas the way humans actually decide things is like almost anything but logical. And so, you know, and you gave an example in the book about, you know, I think these experiments, Chris, where um, people are stuck in a room with other people and they're supposed to like look at what a shape looks like and sort of everybody says what they think. And then what four of the people of the five are actors who say it looks like a square, but it's really clearly a triangle. And eventually the fifth guy will go, yeah, it does look like a square. And he's not, it's not just that he says that because it feels good and gives him a dopamine hit. It, he says it because he's actually now seeing a square. Yes. It changes the perception. It's fascinating. Yeah. And, and I mean, I've, I've been very interested in all the ways our perceptions get shifted around. And I don't think there's any AI that can, can match our irrationality, you know, penchant for understanding things through stories, you know, and things like that. I think that's, we're a long way from something like that. So those sorts of things that are purely human, that's, you know, that's what we told the students is, you know, be real good at those soft skills because that's stuff nobody's going to be able to take for a long time, you know. Dave, I'm curious from your perspective, like where do you think like lawyers overcomplicate themselves and their their processes and their systems in general? From my perspective, I think one of the things that is sort of the danger of of thinking of of, of really trying to be systematic in the way you you look at your firm is overbaking it. Like I think it's possible to create so many checklists, so many procedures, so many manuals that it's almost like, you know, in Chris's book, the example of like 400 warning lights, you know, the Deepwater Horizon was like super safe in terms of like people didn't slip and fall and fall down ladders and things like that. But it was like, there were so many systems and so much redundancy that when things started to go wrong, you, you couldn't tell what was going wrong because everything was going wrong. Uh, and so I think it's like where we get into trouble with complexity is by overbaking stuff. Even when we're like well-intended of saying, I'm going to have a checklist for this process and this process, you know, we, it's really possible to overdo that and take sort of the fluidity, maybe the slack out of things. 
So you, you think that the complexity for law firms comes in by them having systems around things. It doesn't come out of the just sloppy casework or sloppy lawyering in general or anything like that. I mean, that's like the environment throwing complexity at you. I think we, so yeah, it certainly can come from, you know, an inherently high risk complex process, but I think it's possible to make it worse. You know, uh, there's the, what is that book insanely simple about Apple and, you know, sort of the design ethics or aesthetics that they try to shoot for. I mean, I think we're trying to shoot for the same thing where we're really trying to, you know, on, on Chick Perot's chart on that X axis of complexity, as much as we can take out of that, that's going to, that's going to make us less likely to fail. And so, um, you know, I, I, um, I, we need to get Chris to talk about that, but um, that's kind of what I think is that we, we do it to ourselves sometimes. I mean, it's like, you have an ex a polar extreme of on one side, you have like no structure, no anything, and you're just at the victim of whatever comes up the tracks at you, or you, you build so much structure that you can't get off the tracks when the train comes. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you had a guest on a couple of episodes ago, um, whose name I don't remember, but he was a, I think, par a former paratrooper and a, a tax, like, had a tax law consulting practice. Oh yeah, for, uh, that was a that was a great a great interview. And I think there's this idea that we we don't actually put it in these words in the book, but it's something that I really when I'm working with it, with organizations or with teams that I talk a lot about. It's like transparency is the antidote to complexity. It's not the opposite of it. You can but you can use transparency to gain understanding about a complex system and you know where it showed up in what your your other guest was talking about was this idea that like you've got all the pieces in place to know that you know you're going to have a quarterly estimated tax payment that you need to you need to pay but if you don't have tracking for that then that is going to come up every time as a potential surprise. Sometimes you're going to win to it and you're going to be like, oh, I have lots of money. I'm going to pay this. <laughs> Sometimes you're not going to have the cash and you're going to be, you know, get anxious and have to deal with like add complexity on top of that, dealing with a, you know, settlement or a payment plan or whatever. But to me, that's such a great example where you need, you need just enough system to manage the, the kind of inherent complexity of the work, but you don't want too much. Right. And, and I gave you a really specific example of that, that like we have a, a rule from the book called is called the no fake deadlines rule, which is, the, you know, the way that some systems are built, you know, if you have like, here's my task list, and it's possible to put anything you want into that. A lot of things that are not things that have to be done, like your quarterly tax payments, but things like you should do, right. And the problem is, is once you start throwing all that stuff in there, everything looks your tax payment is now the equivalent of, you know, call aunt Jane cause it's her birthday in a week, you know? Totally. So that's one place to take complexity out is to only put in a, a, a task system like that, things that are actual deadlines and then try to look at the, how the system's operating and figure out where your efforts need to be and kind of surf on it rather than like saying, well, here's my list of 900 things I got to do. Cause nobody who's going to do that. And, you know, Larry, I'm going to circle back to the question you asked before, which is like, okay, so we've got this book. How do we think about this stuff? And I think that we're, we're hitting on a couple of these things right now. One is, you know, how do you design your systems so that they are as transparent as possible and they push people as much as possible to kind of automatically do the right thing, right? I think that that's a really important thing. And, you know, 
an example that of a system that makes it hard to do the right thing, I think, is email, right? Because email, every email that comes into your inbox shows up in the same exact way. And one of them might be, you know, an urgent matter that you've got to attend to in an hour. And one of them is, you know, the mailing list from a guy like me who, who you know, sends out like tips and thinking and, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. And so how do you think about giving enough structure to keep people as far away from the kind of cliff as possible, um, but not too far away, right? Because you don't like, like you want to trust your people, but you also want to make it hard for them to make the kind of mistakes that have these kind of big consequences. So that's kind of one of the chunks. Um, we talk a lot about paying attention to near misses, paying attention to small things that go wrong and, and learning from them. And then we talk a lot about decision-making and, you know, and in, in teams and what it, like, how do you encourage people to speak up when there's problems? How do you encourage people to try new things? Um, what are the benefits of a diverse team? Um, you know, both kind of ethnic diversity, but also background diversity and, and how kind of how enough diversity helps you make better decisions by kind of seeing and articulating the problem more clearly as a, for example. You know, what's interesting that you mentioned is like, and, and I don't know if you can put some examples around this, but you kind of like, you were talking before about like making it difficult for people to make mistakes or, or, or just kind of streamlining them or, or pushing them on down this direction where they're mo more likely going to do the correct thing. Like, can you explain that one a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's maybe we can talk about the the opposite. Two two instances where people unintentionally did things that they obviously didn't want to do. One was I don't know if you remember a couple years ago the uh, Hawaii ballistic missile alert. The you know, oh the, yeah, I totally remember right? that. Everybody in Hawaii thought that missiles were inbound, right? Yeah, it was like <laughs> it, I mean the message was something like missiles inbound from North Korea. This is not a drill or something like that. Okay, yeah, like, that's okay. frightening. And then everybody in the supermarket gets the same message. So everybody- Yes, exactly, right. exactly. Okay. I mean, that was an example of several issues, but one of them was just bad user interface design, right? Like the test message button and the actual message button were, were too close together. <laughs> um, and so just as, you know, as, it, as it's like a super dumb example, but it's like, you don't want to rely on human infallibility to, to prevent that kind of thing from happening. And then these are kind of both different design questions, but you can think of them beyond physical design too. The other example that's, I mean, there's a lot of examples, but the, the other one that's coming to mind is, you know, the actor um, Anton, uh, I don't know how to say his last name, Yelchin, um, who was the- Oh the, my gosh, the young man. The Star Trek. Away. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. So he got run, he, his own car backed over him. That's, um, horrible. that's right. It's horrible. It was the push button. Uh, it, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's that it's that monostable gear shifter. So you know, you push it up and then it goes back to the middle, or you push it down and it goes back to middle. And as it was designed, you know, it totally decoupled the physical gear shift from from where the position of the shifter was in the car. And so he had put the car in reverse and didn't realize it, and the car, you know, crushed him. And that's an example of where, you know, the design. You, you needed more transparency in that design. And so I, I think that thinking about systems and transparency is, is really, um, is, is important. And, you know, to, to the, to the point you made earlier, Larry, like, is, is this a sign of societal collapse, our complexity? And, and I think the thing that we really wrestled with in the book was that, you know, complexity gives us capabilities and we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
What a horrible expression that is, by the way. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. Just like, just like, just dawned on me as I said it. People did that regularly and accidentally <laughs> totally. until that saying yeah, was come out. So thank God for it. Right? We need a better like baby back thing so yeah. that the baby doesn't come out with the bath. Exactly. Water. That's how exactly. the suction cup was invented. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh man. Um I'm thinking just you put a mesh strainer on top of the thing and the baby doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> right, yeah. That was the that's the solution. Mesh. You know, this is kind of interesting. There's um there's a book called uh, The Glass Cage by Nick Carr, and it talks all about the interaction of humans and automation and to what extent it um you know it can help and to what extent it can hinder. And it talks a lot about all these books a lot of times at the end of the days go back to aviation because I guess it's so you know, when an accident happens in aviation, it's so bad, but it talks about how like, you know, Boeing's are more tactile than Airbuses and the right. readouts yes. and this and that. And it, it, it's very fascinating. Well, it's a lot of that design stuff. The thing that's cool, you know, and, and Chris, I, you have that example, I guess it's an A330 and a Boeing 737. And I think it's, if I'm, you correct me if I'm wrong, but the, it's the Airbus that has these little joysticks on the side that are like yeah. almost like video game. Very, very beautiful, elegant design. And when we think about like simplicity and you look at that cockpit, you're like, oh, it's so simple. You know, it's like an yeah. apple, you know, or something. And then the, they, the 737, you know, this older aircraft with all these dials and buttons and things that we were just talking about a second ago. But this big, you know, steering yoke that when one pilot moves it, it, it moves for the other one, just like in the old movie, you know, Airplane, which totally. you, if you watch now, you'll be like, how in the hell did that get rated PG? But, you know, <laughs> they, they have this, they, you know, one guy always knows what the other guy's doing because that yoke is right in front of him. You know, he can't eat his lasagna because well, in the automatic pilot also, like there's <laughs> no doubt that the automatic pilot is on in the movie Airplane. Right. Of airplane, yes. <laughs> that was before they couldn't smoke too. I remember that. Okay. <laughs> the um, but yeah, I mean, and the cool thing in the in the book is like you trick Chris translates that to like, well, you know, you sort of have the same problem when you're cooking a turkey for Thanksgiving, right? Because you don't have like feedback. You know, something's not so good. Design is not just about making things as simple as you can, but making things so that you don't get over complexed out when things go wrong, but feedback so that you know what's going on as much as possible when it's going on. And, and I, I suspect that's probably a pretty good kind of broader lesson for, for the legal profession more generally, which is, you know, there are some risks that are kind of worth taking, right? In the, in the sense that, and that's probably, that's probably, does a disservice because I don't mean to suggest that there's like a hyper conservatism, but but I guess what I mean is that you know if you if you never make a mistake in something, then you're working too hard on it. You know what I mean? Like you want to create room for acceptable mistakes to creep into your, your process. I mean, the heart of being you know a a lawyer that is you know in this country generally on the plaintiff side of things is risk taking it's um i am going to take this case i'm taking on a contingency and that might mean that i everything i do is for nothing and so you have to be willing to accept that and so there is sort of a i mean this sounds insane but i've always thought like a i almost have like an internal saying that's air on the side of recklessness because it it almost you know that old saying it's it was the sas he who dares wins I mean, I have found, you know, in 25 years that rarely is 
does that hurt you? You it almost always rewards you, or or on balance it rewards you. And and the other thing I think that that people don't appreciate is you know we're so afraid of losing. Um, we have like this, what's that going to do to my self-image? How am I going to feel after that? But it's yes. really when you get one of those losses that you're like, here's all the things I did wrong. I see now how I can get better. And that is like the greatest opportunity. You know, I, the, the most progress I feel like I've made has always come after like some result. I'm like, that's not what I wanted. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. I think Dave, your, your attitude on that is the exception to the rule, because I think, you know, what I see from Chris is that like, like Chris is saying is that um, my experience with law firms is that, you know, they are trained in precedence, right? Um, there is a lot of risk aversion. I, I think that it is a risk averse profession in general. A lot of them are in the worst case scenario business too. I would love for there to be more risk taking in the legal profession. Well, and, and I think I'll, I'll just, I'll tie that back a little bit to my, my work with Microsoft, which is, you know, the, the kind of first order description is that it's technical work, right? It's sort of, how do you think about, you know, automating the processing of contracts or, you know, extracting the risks from a document that you can do because you've, you know, you've, you've created or, or evaluated, you know, a thousand other documents just like it. But, you know, when you, when you step just a little bit aside from the technical problem, you see that actually you're hitting on an innovation problem and innovation is by its very nature, a very failure prone and very risky activity. I think that, being able to take a cohort of folks that, again, by selection, by training, by professional advancement, tend to be very risk averse, and then put the kind of innovation problem in their hands, that requires a lot of intentionality and, and a, a, a real intentional structure. And I would say that's kind of at the heart of the work that I am doing with Microsoft. It's how do you kind of co, how do you, run technological innovation and culture change at the same time and create feedback between them because they are they are sort of both necessary for things to go forward. You know, Chris, um, we could geek out about all this kind of stuff for like hours and hours and hours, but unfortunately we're kind of at the end of our podcast. Um, if, you know, legal departments or anybody else wants to get in touch with you or read your book, I mean, first of all, I'll, I'll repeat the, the title of the book uh, just so everybody has it, but... Um, it's Chris Clearfield. The book is uh, Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. If somebody wants to reach out to you for an engagement or something like that, how should they do that? Um, you know, the best thing um, is just to email me. So you can just email me, chris at chrisclearfield.com. Um, happy to talk with folks. Um, or you can also connect on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm there under my real name, Chris Clearfield. And then for for your listeners, I set up a, a kind of a, a a larger chunk of the book to give away because I thought it'd be particularly interesting. So if folks go to chrisclearfield.com slash lean law firm, all one word, they can they can sign up for my mailing list and they'll also get not only the start of the book, but they'll get one of the chapters, which is all about wrongdoing and how complexity creates wrongdoing. And I think for for your audience, I think that'll be particularly interesting. We talk about Enron, we talk about uh, hacking, we talk about a kind of lots of lots of stuff in there. And that was one of the most fun things to work on in, in the book. Our audience is all about wrongdoing. So <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. This is a real treat. It's fantastic. Thank you. And the book is everybody buy the book. The book's amazing.
Oh, thanks, guys. Yeah, this was really, really fun. And, you know, as I said, I mean, this is one of the problems that I get to play in. So, you know, working with like the Microsoft legal group has been really, really interesting. Um, you know, I'm doing other organizational work with software companies, with a big oil company. Um, but I also do one-on-one -on -one coaching and that's really focused on business owners. And um, I love that work because it's all about kind of, you know, clarifying goals, thinking about what systems need to be in place and, um, you know, also kind of getting out of our own way, which I think is, is something that uh, a lot of us have to um, really benefit from, from investing in, you know, it's owning, owning a business or running a business is as much about your own personal growth as, as it is about the business's growth. And I just find that work really rewarding. That's great. Well, Chris, thank you so much again. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Thank you guys. Thanks everybody. Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well. So you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners. Subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening and be well until our next breakdown.